All right. You guys ready for this? What have we been learning about these past week or so? What did we learn about last week? What are we teaching on today? What's our service on? What's our series on? What is our series, guys? Heresy. That's right. Here at City Church, I'm going to tell you this. We teach heresy better than any other. No? Okay. It landed. I'm going to take it. I heard at least three giggles. Today we're going to learn about a heresy that is one of the grandfathers of them all. There's basically one underlying heresy that, that filtered throughout the early church, and that was Gnosticism, but we're not learning about that today. We're learning about the first named heresy, uh, one of the biggest ones that people actually learned about and hear about. And I'm going to tell you about this, and that, 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 that heresy is called this. It is called Arianism. Arianism, right? Perhaps, perhaps the most unfortunately named heresy and if you ever want to know what world history is like in the 20th century, please know this, that because of the way people chose to live and act in the 20th century, this heretic now has a bad name. Right? Right? No, thank you both of you for laughing. I appreciate it. I thank you and you specifically. That was the most jokes I've got for this. I got nothing else. I'm done. All right. But Arianism. What is it? Before we can dive into this, I want you guys to know this. Lifeway, uh, in their research division, did a survey of numerous Christians and broke out those who were considering themselves evangelicals. These are people who self-identified as evangelical Christians based off of a couple of criteria. And then they had this giant survey about what people believe. And some of the questions specifically asked questions that were heretical and asked if people agreed with them or disagreed with them. And you'd be surprised to learn evangelical Christians did kind of bad on this survey. We agreed with a lot of heretical stuff, guys. <laughs> a lot of it. For example, this question was asked. This question was asked. It said, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 71% of evangelical Christians agreed with that statement, that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Okay? That question specifically is a question that relates to the Arian heresy. Because the Arian heresy deals with Jesus and who he is and what he's done. Please note, by the way, if you're reading that, you're like, but I kind of agree with that. Please note, you're in good company. Seven-tenths of evangelicals agree with you, Right? But we're going to explain today why that is false and what, it's, uh, what it does if we believe that, how it affects the rest of our theology. Because it seems like that would be our one thing that's possibly off. But that underrides a whole bunch of what we believe. It actually steps through into what we believe about creation, what we believe about the fall of mankind, what we believe about salvation, and how we're able to be saved. And it actually relates to how God relates to people. All this stuff ties into this question, this thought, this statement. All right? So let me give you a little bit of background on Arius first. You ready? Let me show you. This is Arius, by the way. Say hi, Arius. Doesn't he kind of look like Santa Claus? Fun story. We'll talk about that in a second. Santa Claus and this guy had a little tussle. Anywho. You guys are laughing. We'll get to it. Born between 250 and 256 AD, so right around the 3rd century, about halfway through, okay? 3rd century AD, this guy was born. He was a presbyter and a church leader in the Church of Alexandria. He was one of the bigger guys in the church at the time. His major belief is that there was a time when the sun was not. There was a time when the sun 
was not. Basically, he's arguing there was a time that Jesus didn't exist, meaning Jesus is not eternal, okay? The Council of Nicaea, you guys have probably heard us talk about that a bunch of times. The thing that brought out the Nicene Creed was literally called in response to this dude because of the division that was happening in the church over his beliefs. And the council's findings were that Christ was begotten, but not made. Eternally begotten, never created. Okay? Now, why, first of all, does Scripture not agree with Arius that there was a time when the Son was not? Where in the Bible do we see it taught that Jesus is more than a created being? Right? A couple of places. The easiest one... And the most common one is in the book of John. It's super easy, guys, because the book of John literally starts this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything was made that was made. All right? This very first sentence, which as you read through the rest, and we'll read the rest in just a second, is talking about Jesus, basically just blows up Arius' arguments everywhere. Because, first of all, that concept of in the beginning, we're just thinking about the beginning of the world that we know. But when you read in the beginning in Scripture, it is talking about God as he existed before anything was created whatsoever. The Bible starts out with the phrase, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So in the beginning was God, then he put into place creation. So this in the beginning time starts before any creation has happened. If the word was with God before any creation happened then the word is not a created thing. That's easy. And he was with God, and he was God. So he is not distinct from God the Father. He is the same as God the Father. In, he is God. We'll get into it. Don't worry. We got other people teaching on Trinitarian heresies in a little bit. We'll get to it, all right? He was God. And it says that all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Everything was made through Christ, and without him there was nothing created that was created. Meaning, he was not created, because otherwise he would just be creating himself, which is a little weird statement to make, right? He created everything. The rest of this chapter says this. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light and all that might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive them, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I have said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The only God who is at the Father's side 
he has made him known. Again, talking about Jesus as if he is God, part of the Godhead, one of the three beings in the Trinity, right? That whole section is beautiful, and it speaks to Jesus and the way in which he relates to us, and it gives basically a breakdown of how the entire book of John is going to play out. But within this section specifically, we see Jesus called out as God, as the one who created all, as the one who stepped in the flesh and dwelt among men, and as the one who offers us hope and salvation, right? This is who Jesus is and what he's done. And he is the only one by whom we can understand who God is. Easy enough. There are other sections in the Bible that also point out who God is, who Christ is. Uh, In the Synoptic Gospels, we see Jesus doing things like creating food, uh, overcoming wind and waves by his power, uh, doing things that were worthy of worship by his people, uh, being godly, right? When you claim to be Lord of the Sabbath, a thing that was instituted by God, you kind of are saying something about yourself. Another one, even in the book of John, which is pretty easy. Uh, so to note, Arius would have wholly believed that God in the Old Testament, the I am, is God the Father. And he's arguing that Christ, a created being, is not that person, right? John also talks about time whenever Jesus sort of disagreed with that himself. So there was a time whenever Jesus was talking about the fact that he was the bread of heaven. He said, I am the bread of heaven. You must eat of me or else you will perish, right? And they're like, whatever. The Jewish leaders did not like Jesus saying this. So the Jewish leaders grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father except he who is from God, He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. They reply, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the bread that came down from from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to you, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you have eaten this flesh and drink in this blood of the Son of Man, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Oh, I skipped the part. This is not the part I wanted. This isn't the right part. (sighs) Kicking out here. They have this giant conversation about Jesus being the bread in the wilderness, right? about Jesus being the one who is of God and from God. About a chapter later, because I'm dumb and selected the wrong chapter, Jesus is talking to uh, the Jewish leaders again. And they are again disputing who he is and what he's done, right? And as they're disputing with him, they ask him several questions. And one of the questions they ask him is, you say that you have seen, that Abraham has seen your day and was glad about it, because Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and he was glad. And they said, you say Abraham has seen this, but how can Abraham have seen you? Abraham was born centuries ago, generations ago, 
and was long dead before you were ever about. How could you say that Jesus, that Abraham was happy about your day? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. And he calls himself that name, which was ascribed to the God of the Old Testament. And he proclaims that he has existed since Abraham's time at least, that he has been around and that he was the one who was speaking to Abraham during Abraham's trials and moves. And the Jewish people knew exactly what he was saying because they tried to kill him. You don't kill someone for an okay statement. You kill someone for claiming to be God. At least they did. Generally, you guys shouldn't kill people. Just tossing that out there. Try hard not to. Okay? Yeah, right? Yeah. <sighs> Jesus claimed Godhead on multiple occasions. In the book of Revelation, we see Jesus judging the entire world. Everything. In Thessalonians, Jesus is the one who comes down and saves the world. Uh, in Paul's writings, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him and through him all things were created. Everything on heaven and on earth was created by Christ. Throughout scripture, we see this spoken again and again, that Christ is God and does what God does. Now, there is a distinction that needs to be drawn as part of what caused this entire thing to hit, which is the fact that while Jesus is God, he is distinct from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And so if Jesus is God but is distinct from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, how does that work, right? And it's very, very difficult to wrap our brains around. By difficult, I mean literally impossible. We can't understand it. It is a paradox to humanity. We can't understand how this functions. So enjoy teaching on that one, Ken. Right? Yeah. Uh, in a little bit, Ken and Beck are going to teach on two separate Trinitarian heresies. One that teaches that all three people of the Godhead are one person, and one that teaches all three are three separate gods. Right? And those are the two wrong things that pretty much every time you try to describe the Trinity, you fall in one direction or another. Okay? So both are wrong, and they're going to explain why, and then they can fight about which one is, the, how do you properly say it, which basically enjoy that argument, which will never be solvable. Right? Anywho. So this, huh? You're welcome. Enjoy. I was like, you guys are just great at that. And I don't have to talk about it whatsoever. Anywho, this dynamic hits. God the Father and Jesus are distinct, but both are God. And we don't have multiple gods, we have one God. How does this work? Arius' response was to say, well, Jesus is kind of divine, but not really. He's not the same as God the Father. He is different in substance. Uh, they got into some very technical philosophical discussions as to the way or manner in which Christ was different from God. And his big one was that, A, he said that Christ was created by God the Father. So at some point in the past, God the Father was himself a lone entity, and then he chose to make of himself another like him, but not quite. Divine, but a different substance, right? And this created divine, but different substance being was Jesus, is what Arius argued. So there was a time whenever Christ didn't exist, and then God chose to create Christ. The church argued, no, that's not the case. Christ always has been and always will be. He is the great I am from beginning to end. 
He is the one who has come from before, and he is the one who will finish everything out. He is. There was no time he did not exist. Now, the phrase begotten, they still hold on to, that Christ is begotten of the Father, that he is of the same substance of God the Father. He is God too. And they argue that he is eternally begotten. By God's nature, God is eternally begetting the Son. The Father and the Son are in eternal relationship and have been for all time and will be for all time. There was never a time Christ was not begotten. There will always be a begotten Son. And the Spirit will always proceed from the two, these three aspects. I say the two, but eh, get into that later. Cause the schism in the church. Anywho. <sighs> heresy is fun guys all right there was never a time whenever these three persons of the trinity did not exist they have always existed and they have always been in relationship with each other and they have always demonstrated god's nature and his character together and they are together god they are he i have no better way to say it than that they are he okay having said all of that we can see why scripture points out that Arius' argument isn't the best because Christ was shown to be eternal in John and proclaimed as eternal himself and that he has always existed and will always exist. And he's a perfect image of God. Then the issue that comes here is, so what? Who cares if someone believes that Christ was created at some point in the very far past well before the earth and everything was created. Who cares? What does it matter? It's functionally the same thing, right? Like, does it matter if Christ was always begotten or begotten at some point very far back where we can think about? Does it matter? The answer is, yeah, actually, it kind of does for a couple of different reasons. Here's the first one. If Christ was created, some problems start to pop up pretty quickly in our theology. Check this out. In the creation story, we hear about Adam and Eve these two created beings who were basically the pinnacle of God's creation, who through their sin broke that creation <laughs> by choosing to disobey God, all of creation came under a curse and is broken because of their sin. Now, please note, is it just all of creation that happened after they sinned? No, like they were the last things created actually, so... <laughs> If it was everything that was created after them, there's nothing else that was actually broken. But Satan went under a curse. He was created before them. The earth itself was under a curse. Thorns grew up. Thistles were hard. Work was necessary to actually make sure the land brought forth food. Uh, everything else was broken. Right? The world itself, creation itself, was broken by this act of rebellion of people. This is basic creation theology. Like, doesn't matter what you believe about the mode of creation, whether you believe in uh, evolution, evolutionary creation or whether you believe in a seven-day creation. It doesn't matter when that side. What matters is this is the primary driving point of the creation story. We messed up the world by our sin. We broke it, and we can't fix it. Right? And everything that was made before us, we broke too. That's the big asterisk part there. Everything that was made before us we broke too. If Jesus was a created being, then whenever we broke creation, we would have broken him too. Right? That doesn't work. 
Christ is perfect without sin. Never stepped foot outside of what God called for. In Romans, we read about the fact that in Christ, we have the ability to become new creations because of his perfect creation. What Adam broke, Christ fixed. If Christ was broken by Adam, could Christ have fixed Adam? No. Christ can't be created or else we messed him up too. That's pretty easy. Then there's this one too. If Christ was created, then Christ is different from God and we have a severe problem with our theology of how salvation happens. Because here's the deal. We agree that people don't have the ability to fix what we broke in creation, including what we broke in ourselves, including our own sin. We don't have the ability to fix it ourselves. No matter how good I try to be, I can't be good enough to be good. I'm not good. I can't fix me. I need someone outside of me to fix me. I need someone better than me to fix me. And someone better than me fixed me, which is good. Jesus did so. But here's another thing, too. We also learn about this, that in Christ, God fixed the world, right? In his death and sacrifice and resurrection, Christ fixed all of creation. In the sacrifice he offered for us in himself, we have salvation. If Christ is different from God, then the way we talk about our salvation changes. It is no longer God offered himself up for us that we might have salvation. It is God punished a different created being on our behalf. And that other created being took punishment that we deserve. In one of these scenarios, God is perfectly just, and that is him taking on our imperfections himself. In the other one, God is acting unjustly because he's giving to someone else something that person didn't deserve and punishing him in our state. To note, that Christological heresy that we're talking about, Arianism, the easiest way we can see it pop out in our evangelical churches is in that theology. I believe in what is called penal substitutionary theology, which is the fact that someone took on the effects of sin for our behalf. But I believe that Christ took them upon himself and that God's wrath was poured out on sin itself in Christ's sacrifice. You see Arianism pop up whenever you say God, this different person from Jesus, poured out all of his anger and wrath over sin onto a different person, Christ, on behalf of us. And we hear that preached all the time in the evangelical church. That's one of the main ways that people teach about salvation. We teach that God did to him what he should have done to us. When that's not the way we should speak about it, God didn't do it to Jesus. Jesus took it upon himself as God. The difference here is this. If someone were standing here holding a gun to Ken's head and said, I'm going to shoot Ken, one option is for me saying, no, shoot me instead, right? Which is something I can choose to do. Will I? Great question. Please no one hold a gun to Ken's head. But I have the option to do so, right? And that would be just for me to say so. No, shoot me instead is just. For me to say, hold on, don't shoot Ken. Um, Jake's back there. Not him instead. Sounds a little less just, right? Who am I to make that decision and send that judgment over to someone else, right? 
That's what we're arguing happens sometimes, whenever we argue that God punished Jesus instead of us without recognizing that Jesus is God taking it on himself. This is what the Arian heresy leads to, a misunderstanding of how salvation happens. So soteriological heresy, a misunderstanding of who Christ is, so Christological heresy, a misunderstanding of how Christ relates to the Father and the Holy Spirit, which is a Trinitarian heresy. It pops out over and over again. We see that if we hold that Christ is a created being, basically all of our theology just sort of falls away. It is as much of a damager to our faith than as if Christ never resurrected. Because if he was a created being, it doesn't matter if he resurrected. He's just Lazarus again. And Lazarus was a cool guy, but he didn't do anything. He just lived again and then died again. Jesus is bigger than Lazarus. He is bigger than anyone else who has come before him. He is God himself. He has overcome. And that in itself teaches us about Jesus and God and his nature, right? Whenever we read God made him who had no sin to be a sin offering on our behalf that we might have the righteousness of God, the only one who falls in that category of he who has no sin is God himself. God made himself to be a sin offering on our behalf that we might have the righteousness of God. We talk about Jesus a lot as a father offering his son for us. But we have to remember that it is also a father offering himself for us. God offering himself for us. If you want to know how much God loves you, he didn't just punish someone else on your behalf. He didn't do that. He punished himself on your behalf. He accepted on himself the punishment that we deserve. And he was the only one big enough to accept that punishment and overcome it. This is how salvation happens. God took our sin upon himself. The weight of all our sin were on his shoulders. He's just so good, guys. If you want to know how much God loves you, know that he took his sin upon himself for your sake. He accepted which he never deserved, never earned, because it wasn't his. So that you might have what you could never earn or deserve, which is right standing before him. He made himself low, he took on flesh, so that he could do this for you. Because he loves you. There's no greater love than that. Amen? Yeah. Let's take a second and pray and praise our Lord for what he has done for us, for offering himself on our behalf, for showing himself to be good and holy and godly, for showing himself to love us to the extent that he was willing to die for us. He was willing to take on flesh, be born, live, and die that we might have relationship with him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We cannot begin to thank you enough for what you have done on our behalf. Father God, we praise you because we know that we could never overcome the sins of this world. Lord, we praise you because we know no created thing could ever overcome them either. Lord, you had to step in and you chose to. So we thank you for that. Father, in doing so, you have shown your perfect righteousness, your perfect goodness, your perfect holiness. You have shown yourself to be a God who is worthy of all praise and honor because of your great love for us. 
Lord, thank you for being willing to take this burden upon yourself. Because, Lord, we couldn't have done it. We couldn't. Lord God, may we remember what you have done for us. May we praise you daily for it. And, Lord God, may we thank you for being who you are. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Get yours if your own's broken. Uh, it's not broken, it's just in this area. Oh, I didn't even think of that. Yeah. I'm also wearing a polo shirt. It actually works. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I know for me at least, uh, maybe some people want to call it a blessing. For me it was a blessing in college. I love learning this stuff because so much of my walk with God, so much of my faith um, was challenged um, before I even went to college of the fact of people would ask questions or ask things, you know, and uh, I couldn't give an answer. I couldn't really argue logically, theologically, you know, at all. Uh, and it's really important with these heresies in, in mind to think that these are people at their time um, that were trying to wrap their heads around something transcendent. They were trying to wrap their minds around something that is not even relatable to us to some extent. You know, like we can't really fathom what it is to be a God. Uh, and so for me, at least, the Trinity and the Incarnation are the two, like, theological beliefs that I uphold to, and there's reason to believe in them, but I also submit to the mystery that they are. And it's not that I know every other theology, but those are the two that challenge me the most, because Trinitari or Trinity, and speaking of Trinitarian theology, we really can't fathom what it is to be outside of time, space, and matter. What we know is that. Um, there is logical conclusions as to why we believe in Trinity. Scripture speaks of Trinity, um, but there's still that aspect of we have to submit that if God truly is transcendent, there's going to be parts about God that we can't understand. If there was, then we would be God and he wouldn't be transcendent. And the same thing is with the incarnation, in which Arius here is trying to do that. He's trying to wrap his mind around uh, how can I explain this? How, how can this work? And um, with the incarnation, you have full, the full humanity of God, of Christ, and you also have the full godness of Christ. I can never wrap my mind around that because I have no godness in me to wrap my mind all the way around that. But I think it's important to think about Arius and how easy it is for us even to do the same thing. It's something that is transcendent, something that is mysterious, something that is beyond us, and we try to control it. We try to make it work within the parameters of what we know. And by doing so, we end up committing a heresy. We end up making God something he's not. And so I think it's very important, and I'd like that to be the kind of thing that we meditate on today is that what areas in our life are we trying to say, this is the God that I want, or this is how God will answer my prayers, or this is how God will deal with this issue politically, socially, whatever. We try to make God what we want him to be as opposed to what he is, and what ends up happening is we make a definition, like Arius does, of, well, this is how it works in my mind, so therefore this is what God is. But then what happens is it affects our whole belief system. It affects our whole outlook. Just like Chris said with the, with the good um, analogy of um, if somebody was to threaten Ken, you know, like how you, yeah, yeah, but how, how, you know, we, we tend to, what you believe, what you believe about God, and if God is truly transforming you, what you believe about him will affect how you see other people, will affect how you see judgment, how you see justice, how you see compassion, how you see mercy, and if your definition of God is not what he says he is, then you're not worshiping God. We're not worshiping God, we're worshiping an idol. We're worshiping a, a man-made thing, and we tend to do that. We tend to make God a perfect version of ourselves, but what we need is not a perfect version of ourselves. We need Christ, who is perfect, that is that perfect mediation, that we don't have to be perfect. We can eliminate this um, legalistic theology and just accept that of grace and mercy that Christ is. So as you participate in communion today, I would just ask that um, 
you'd be meditative, be reflective of Christ and say, what areas in my life am I trying to control? Am I trying to say, this is how you work in it? This is how I want you to be and submit to that. Surrender to that and say, God, use me in the way that you've created me to be. Allow me to be okay with the mystery. Uh, mystery. Allow me to not have control, but to trust in you. To have faith is truly to trust in him and to depend on him. doesn't mean it's illogical, but it means that you don't know the outcome. And the beauty that we have is because that God is outside of time, space, and matter. He sees all things, he knows all things, and is a part of all things. So he's not going to abandon you. So when you're ready, please feel free to participate in communion with us today.